Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. This is episode number 96 with Hap Klopp of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. now, the Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Go, Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning in. Before we start today's episode, I just want to let you know that our goal at Founder is to help entrepreneurs succeed however we can by giving away high quality content in the form of interviews, blog posts, podcasts, YouTube videos, you name it. We put out so much content to help you. And another interesting project that we're working on right now is partnering with world-class founders like Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills like negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free trainings with founders like this, which is 100% free, just go to founder.com forward slash free. Okay, so now let's talk about today's episode. Hello and welcome to another awesome episode of the Founder Podcast. And I have to say awesome, and that is because we've got an amazing guest on the show today. Have any of you guys heard of the company called North Face? Uh, they're an amazing brand and I sport their vests uh, big time. They're big puffer vests. They're really, really warm. And uh, they're very, very well known in the space. They've been around for a very, very long time. And in this episode, we actually speak to the founder of the North Face. And his name is Hap Klopp. And uh, he's been building businesses for the past 50 years now. And uh, we draw upon so much wisdom and gold from Hap, especially around what it takes to build a household brand. And... This is something that we haven't really tackled uh, at Founder, especially for the podcast, um, because it's one thing to actually build a company, to build a startup, a successful startup, but perhaps build a brand that has stood the test of time, and that brand has gone through all sorts of pivots and turns. But there's a lot of fundamental lessons that Hap shares with us around core brand building things that we can all take away and learn from. Really, really excited about today's guest, especially uh, because I am such a fan of the gear that uh, North Face create and uh, fascinating story. 
So that's it from me. I hope you are enjoying these episodes. Please do leave us a review if you are. It helps more than you can imagine. All right, now let's jump into the show. The first question I ask everybody that uh, we interview is, is how'd you get your job? I got it because I couldn't work for anybody else. <laughs> you know, I left Stanford Business School. I had some interviews with large companies uh, because I couldn't find anything that I could run. Nobody was asking me to do that. I had run a family company after my father died when I was in college, and I ran that simultaneously with going to Stanford, and I decided to sell it. So I got went back at my MBA and sold it while I was getting my MBA. And then I was looking around for a chance to run something because I thought I had the background to do it. I was the only one that was convinced of that. So uh, then I had interviews and I interviewed with Procter & Gamble, among others, because I was focused on consumer goods and focused on uh, the marketing and sales because I kind of have a flair for that branding. And uh, when I went there with the interview, and this is in one of my books, Conquering the North Face. But, you know, I went for the interview and the first thing was he said, is your name Hap or is it Kenneth? And I said, well, it could be either one. Most of my friends call me Hap. And he said, when you work here, it'll be Kenneth because there's no nicknames. He said, and, and likewise, you'll need to be wearing a white shirt and a tie, which kind of pissed me off because I was wearing a white shirt and a tie and I didn't see any productivity analysis there. And I'm realizing <laughs> I'm in the wrong place. Uh, and then he asked the question that all interviewers ask, so banal, but, you know, pointing up to the corner of the room like he's communicating with God. He said, uh, and, and if you were to join our organization, where do you envision that you would be in five years? If I were to join, and I'd like to underscore the word if, I would expect to be president in five years. And that means passing you in five minutes. But I don't think that's any big deal. And... Of course, he left. I mean, it was it was a good interview, even though I make fun of it later on, because he was talking about the environment that existed in a large company and letting me know what it would take to be part of that. And I didn't want any part of it, to be very honest. I, I didn't fit into that. So I knew I was at that point. I knew I was an entrepreneur and I realized that all I could do is go start my own company because I probably couldn't work for anybody else. And so that led me to try and figure out what I knew something about. I didn't know very much. I had that NCAA uh, idea, which is no clue at all, uh, but I was coming out of school. So I basically uh, decided because I knew something about the outdoors, because that's what you did in Spokane, Washington, where I was raised, then uh, I would do that. So that's that's what led me to to start the North Face. I actually did a consulting project in the industry while I developed the idea that acquired some stores that existed that did about 300,000 in volume and commenced setting up, building a brand, creating products, identity, all, all of that stuff. Yeah, wow. And, you know, can you take us back to the early days? Because you started the North Face oh, 30, was it 30 years ago? No, yeah, even longer, 1968. Yeah, wow. And, being an entrepreneur, that wasn't – was that even a, a term back then? No, they couldn't spell it then, but over time they've been able to. <laughs> so, you know, how did that start? You said you were doing some consulting in a similar type industry and then you acquired a couple of, of stores? That's correct. I mean, the idea that we had was we were going to make the world's best product and uh, it was much more expensive than anything that existed on the market. Initially, we were focused on uh, sleeping bags and tents and packs and, and such. And we knew 
how to make it better. What we did was use a concept which I continue to employ. I call it turning the arrow back. But what we did was apply technology to a commoditized field. And uh, the technology we were applying at that time came from the Vietnam War, and we applied it to the general camping business to lighten the load. So aircraft aluminum became tent poles and pack frames, and parachute cloth became sleeping bags, tent tops, and uh, some funky clothing. And what we did was lighten the load that people had to carry by about 50%. And suddenly, instead of going 200 feet into the wilderness, people started going miles. Uh, women joined the fray because it wasn't a beast of burden act any longer. And uh, we were able to do it. But the challenge that we had and we knew we were going to have is is it always takes twice as long, costs three times as much when you're going to develop a business. So uh, we knew that it might take a while for people to understand what we're doing and adopt that. And so we had to figure out how we got some cash flow out. And one of the ideas was to have stores. By acquiring these stores, they sold products which would sell our products, which we were developing, designing and developing, but also we'd sell other products that were sort of allied. So we'd have basically money to go to the grocery store on a daily basis while we're waiting for the world to catch up with these brilliant ideas we had. Mm, I see. And, you know, like how did you build North Face into this massive brand that just everybody knows? Like, can you give us some insight around that? Like, obviously it's taken a long time and, you know, it, it does take time to build a brand, but there's some key things that I'm sure people can take away and and I'm sure you mentioned a lot of this in your in your book, Conquering yep. the North Face. But can we just delve a little bit into that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, understand that brands are like coral. Uh, they build on a whole bunch of different points and come together in an elegant way down the road. But while you're building them, it's hard to see. And their impact doesn't really come together instantly, but over time. And so we knew that. So we set about, one, setting up a branding strategy where we defined what the company was. We sort of defined the keywords that were us. And then we made sure that it touched every single customer, every single employee, every single stakeholder in the same way. One of those words was basically quality. And what we did is we said we were going to make the best. So then we tried to figure out how do you convey that idea to the marketplace? Because everybody says they have the best mm -hmm. and whether they do or don't. And so what we did was adopt a lifetime warranty for our product. That lifetime warranty worked with everybody we were involved with. The people who were making the product realized how serious we were, that it would come back to them to re be repaired, and they didn't want that. The customers that were buying it in the field knew where we stood because of something like that. Either they have to be crazy are pretty dedicated to make that sort of comment. The retailers saw it as a way to sell a product that was much more expensive because they would say basically, you know, it may seem expensive, but when you use it for a lifetime, then over a number of uses, it will be really pretty reasonable. So by having that sort of point that we had in there, that was one way to do it. A second thing which we had was a concept and we made it into a mission statement for a while was our objective was to bring the customer back. And that's what we defined that as it. 
And so the benefit of that is, is to us was great because if you have a lifetime warranty and you're making things like tents or sleeping bags, the reality is the customer wouldn't be coming back automatically for another because they wouldn't necessarily need one. We didn't believe in planned obsolescence. We believed in environment and such. In fact, we believe that the most environmental product is not using recycled materials, but it was having a product that never ended up in landfill. So we decided that to do that, we were going to have to move into apparel because people who bought sleeping bags and tents that were happy could also buy apparel. And uh, it would also, they would hopefully use word of mouth to tell their friends about this fabulous company that we had. So everything we did was about that. And then and then what we would do to ensure that it it uh, stuck is we try to develop stories that were consistent with this, stories that would be told as parables by people in the company on people outside the company to show how uh, crazy we were about quality. And one of those stories, just to give you a, a specific that relates to it, was uh, we had a warranty department, and the warranty department would take care of defects. They repair or replace, depending on what they could do, if something went wrong with the product. Well, in, in our company, we delegated a lot of responsibility uh, to the outermost points of the company because we believe that the quicker you responded to a customer's needs or to a supplier's needs or a vendor's need, the happier they're going to be and the more effective you're going to be rather than setting up a bureaucratic chain. So anyway, Aisha was running that department, had uh, total authority and autonomy and to do what she wanted. Well, a couple of customers came in and they had a competitor's product, competitor was Sierra Designs, uh, and, which was across town. And they came in and they said, listen, we want to go out hiking this weekend, but our products failed and we can't do it. And, and they can't repair it for us. We were wondering if you'd repair it. And her response was, sure, we're glad to do it. You know, we're, you know, we're like you. We hike a lot and we know how important it is on the weekends or the times that you get away to enjoy it. Uh, we'll fix it and we'll fix it for free because they make great products over there. Uh, we know the customer. We're out to make people happy. Well, we did and made it happy. And whether they were scamming us or ripping us off or whatever, it helped us because it created a great story. And we knew that even if they were sort of uh, scamming us, what they would do is tell so many people about how great our service was that it would be comparable to none. So we tried to select keywords. Then we tried to develop stories about them, parables, if you will, that could be retold again and again and again that would highlight those points. And we tried to make sure that everything we were saying would hit consistently across all the stakeholders we're involved with. That was the employees. That, frankly, it was investors, too. It was also the customers who were buying it, the suppliers we had. And we tried to be consistent because brands come from consistency and patience and brands come from using novel and innovative ways to shout your message out to the marketplace. That's, that's some serious gold. Um, I'm curious around, you know, you, it sounds like, you know, you, you started off with um, just the outdoor stuff, like you said, sleeping bags and, and, and hiking stuff, but then you started to move into apparel and that's what I personally know um, you guys for, and you know, I, I have one of your vests. They're so warm. They're so warm in winter. What are your thoughts on, I guess, around focus? Because sometimes you, f I find that some entrepreneurs, they're just trying to do too many things and they're trying to work on too many things, like too many products, too many services, and it just becomes overcomplicated. What, 
What is your thoughts and, and insight around that? Because, you know, it, it can get exciting to work on new products and, and tap into new industries with your brand. And, and how do you maintain that focus and know when well, to move on to the next thing? Nathan, I, I'm all in accord with what you're saying. I, I mean, I tell people I'm not smart enough to be complex. Maybe I am. I don't know. Maybe I'm not. But whenever, you know, I do consulting now after I've sold the North Face, which a few years back, and I invest in and involved in companies and I write books and I teach at schools. But across all of that, I use a couple of things which I recommend to people. The first one is deselect. Everybody thinks more is better. But more isn't better because more is hard to execute. Business is complex. Even the simplest business has too much going on. The first thing you should look at is not what you can add, but what you can take out of the offering you have, whether it's a product or a service or an approach. Because if you get it down to its essence, that's easily executed. And and one of the uh, rules I tell people is don't confuse planning and strategy with execution execution almost always wins. And so the execution comes from simplicity. So I try to get people to do that. The other thing which I tell people to do, which is a variation on on that, but basically to insinuate into your offering unobtainium. And unobtainium is simply that which nobody else can provide, whatever the unique secret sauce is that you have, because everybody wants something that others can't get. And it's simple to do. I mean, it, sometimes it's if you're starting off and you don't have any customers, what you can do is go to a customer to and offer them exclusivity. Uh, if you're talking about selling to retailers, it's easy to offer exclusivity because nobody wants your product, but that exclusivity could have value for them because it might be something they really want. So I try to put those two things in. I try to simplify it so it can be executed well. I try to simplify it so it's done quickly because in today's market, uh, speed to market and speed to uh, profitability is key. Also, you know, when it came to you know building North Face, the North Face, you know, tell us about some challenges. Tell us about some stories that uh, – know the audience will find interesting and and it could really relate to us all because building a company you know especially a large size company a well-known you know household brand name isn't easy well it's not and some of the stories are probably too lengthy for the time we have but i'll give you one as an example uh you know i tell people when you think you've got everything going right look out you're just missing something and it's going to come back to haunt you it's a series of linked recoveries that you have in business that you elegantly describe as a plan later on. But one of the things we did was we were doing a round of financing to be able to grow because we were growing much faster than our capital would allow. And it always takes a long time and it's a lot of agony putting it together. And it happened to be during the winter and I wanted to do some skiing, but the whole time I had to focus on fundraising to be able to bring it in. Well, finally, I had accomplished it. The money was in an escrow account. All we needed was the lawyers to sprinkle holy water on it and we were ready to go. So I took time then and the family and I went out to Colorado to go skiing and uh, got there. And in the morning, I got a call from the people at uh, the office and they said, are you sitting down? And of course, that is never good when they say that. But I said, yes, I am. They said, well, the roof fell in. And I said, well, you're talking about literally or figuratively? 
And they said, no, literally. They said what happened is the, uh, the rain gutter stopped up. There was rain here. Uh, the beams, the glue lamb beams shattered. Water came pouring in. Uh, the fire department won't let us go in to get anything out of there. All of the computers are fried. We have no access to information. And on top of that, here we just raised money that was in escrow. So I was going to have to go back and tell those people they could take their money back. We didn't know what was on there. Well, I mean, the first thing I did, which I think is good entrepreneurial advice, is I decided I'd continue to ski that day because I couldn't get home anyway and didn't know how long it'd be till I'd ski again and, uh, you know, freed my mind a little bit. But then we came back and we said, listen, we'll put together a SWAT team and we'll solve this. And we don't know how we're going to solve it, but we know we're going to solve it. We had insurance, but we didn't know how long it'd take the insurance companies to pay. We've got, had to have a solution around that. Uh, what we did was go up to the University of California and got a bunch of uh, IT computer jockeys and had them come down to try and access information. We had our customer service people call the customers and ask them for a copy of the orders they'd written because we didn't know what those orders were and, and, and tell them, oh, by the way, had a little glitch, uh, might be a few weeks in delivering, but we'll, you know, we'll get there. And so we tried to collect customer orders that way and calm them down. At the same time, at night after the uh, fire department was away, we'd send a SWAT team in with hard hats and whatever to sneak out any product that they could from in the factory that was in process or completed and finished goods, sneaking it out, putting it in another warehouse so we could ship it. And, uh, you know, then I went to the investors and told them we just had a little glitch. You can take your money back if you want, but the situation's the same. And all of that transpired. We were able to do it. We were able to save it. We were able to save most of the orders uh, that happened on time. We were able to patch things together to be able to get there. But, uh, you know, in this orderly way of building a great company, you forget sometimes about all of those those glitches you have along the way. Yeah, that's so true. I want to talk to you about leadership because before you sold the North Face, you know, how many, like, people did you have uh working for the company are you able to talk around you know turnover and yeah. just the size yeah we we had about 1500 employees and we were a couple hundred million in sales and worldwide and that you know it was a nice size company i don't know that i ever want that many employees again uh, because it's a, a challenge if you're really committed to employees uh, you know, if you're committed to 10 employees, you can probably take care of them in ways. But when you talk about 1,500 with all sorts of diversity, I mean, we spoke 14 different languages at all times in our factory. And that was a bit challenging, but it allowed us to hire the best people that were available uh, as a result of it, people coming in who had skills in that area. And so, you know, part of the leadership challenge was how do you motivate people when you can't even talk with some of them? And how do you create that inspiration? And some of that's just through sheer passion. You know, if they can sense your passion, even if they don't know your words, uh, it, it goes a long way. And passion speaks when you're not in the room. So that's one of the tools I felt that it was leadership. And as we built that company up, what we tried to do, as I said, is delegate a lot of authority. That's a good leadership tool because when people have uh, some authority and it's equal to the responsibility they have, they feel very comfortable and they feel like somebody's got their back and they feel like somebody respects them. Whereas if you just tell them what to do, as opposed to what the goal is, what happens over time is they feel disrespected and they feel like they're just a, a part, a cog in the wheel. And so the idea was to vest them with authority, measure them, hold them accountable, 
at the same time motivate them through your passion to be able to get where you're going to go. That's awesome. And let's talk about your new book, Almost. Can you tell us right. about that? Yeah, that's as opposed to uh, the first one, which is all about leadership success principles. Uh, almost is about failure. And uh, we wrote it. I write with a co-author when I write, but we wrote it because people don't understand a couple of things. One is failure is more common than not. If you look at uh, Silicon Valley, and this is where the company was located, most of them are VC-supported investments. And the B VC formula in their portfolio is make 10 investments, expect two to be home runs and you're really successful, expect two to go outright bankrupt, and then you get rid of the other six before your VC pool uh, has to wrap up, which is usually five to seven years. And so that means a merger, a fobbing off, closing down, or whatever. So in essence, about eight out of 10 investments there fail. And in other parts of the world, if you fail, what happens is it's a real blemish on your record. Maybe you can't get employed again. In Silicon Valley, it is not a blemish. It's considered a plus. In fact, there are some VCs that won't invest in company unless they have a few people in the management team who have failed. And the reason is that failure works out here is that it allows people to swing for the fences. You know, if you if you're afraid of failing, then you don't make huge ideas. You don't try to look for uh, huge change. You just do incremental. And in Silicon Valley, it's not a problem. If you think of the greatest success in Silicon Valley, it's probably Steve Jobs. And he failed, as we all know. He, he got kicked out of, of Apple. They brought him back later when he learned how to play well with others and, and uh, when they needed him. But other people, Mark Andreessen of Netscape, and he now has an investment firm. Max Levichon, who was in PayPal with, with Elon Musk and Peter Thiel. All of those people failed in their first go-round. And the, the fact of the matter is it's easy to get funded in Silicon Valley and Boston and a few other places if you fail, because if you know what happened, you'll never make that mistake again. So what they look for is people who've learned from those mistakes. So this book was about writing about a failure, pointing out that the reality is in Silicon Valley, most people don't start a company and become a billionaire overnight. Most of them actually end up going through a series of failures or, or semi-failures or partial failures uh, to go somewhere else. And so the book is about a company, almost the title tells you about it, but it's about 12 months actually inside a company that should have succeeded. It had uh, employees from Stanford and Carnegie Mellon, the Naval Academy, had two astronauts uh, that were part of it. It had the head of the mechanical engineering department at Stanford as part of it. Uh, it had millions of dollars in cash to be able to develop its ideas, and it got torn apart because it didn't follow principles that are standard for making a business successful. And it's a story. As I said, I like to put stories out and parables and whatever. It's a story because it can be enjoyable to read. It's probably more memorable. I don't believe in trying to have rote memorization of the four Ps of marketing or the seven effective habits of highly effective people or whatever. It's more about if you remember a story then when you face a situation that's somewhat different, you may still remember the principle. And some of the principles that are embedded in there, the first one is you can't have multiple cultures in a small business, you have to have one. And we had uh, some people who wanted to create products, uh, R&D, and never make two of the same. We had people in the sales department that wanted only all of, of the one product produced again and again, and never reconciled it. 
there was a body of people who believed in the lithium-ion battery base because it was a heat and power-based product that could be inserted into consumer goods, jackets, and, uh, and other consumer goods. And there were other people who believed in fuel cells, which was long run where the company was headed. But uh, the cultures were constantly clashing. And so that was one of the failures. And another failure that happened was basically uh, the myth of overnight success. We were visited by a company in Silicon Valley, one of the big companies there, and immediately the CEO and some others in the company thought we're going to sell out and be rich overnight. Well, overnight successes take years, but the people who believed that then dropped doing anything that was reasonable. They dropped doing uh, strategic planning. They dropped worrying about fiscal responsibility. They overspent the amount of cash in the company by $2 million. Some pretty interesting stories about that in the book. But you know, I had tried to save them on that. And the moment I saved them, they spent every dollar I found to save them because they were so convinced, a few of them were so convinced that Big Silicon was going to buy us by the end of the year that it didn't matter if we ran out of money. Well, Big Silicon didn't buy them. And of course, out of money, you start ending up with kind of the third problem. And as we run out of money, you make bad decisions. One of the decisions there was we didn't have enough money left to invest in uh, manufacturing for uh, actual market use, repeated use. And we did great R&D development and all of that, but we hadn't tested it when you used a product a thousand times. Well, when we used it a thousand times, we had some failure and the failure ended up in a recall. So cheap is expensive, expensive is cheap. Uh, you know, what we, where we save money, it cost us a bunch and, and the end run of what we're doing. And so those sorts of stories are embedded in it. As I said, it's written to be entertaining. It's written to be memorable. People can either read it as a page turner, which people have told me they've done without thinking about it, or they can read into it, you know, what caused this company to fail? What shouldn't I do before? I'm a big advocate of if you can help people out, OPM is great. That's other people's mistakes, other people's money. And by reading this book, I hope I provide some of that so that people don't have to replicate our mistakes. Uh, there's plenty they can make on their own, but they won't have to replicate ours. And almost is, is all about that. Mm, sounds awesome. I can't wait to pick up a copy. So I'm curious, this, this company is, was something that you started after you uh sold the North Face? Now they asked me to come in and help them market because they were having problems. And among others, they were having problem raising some more money. And I probably should have seen that as a bellwether there, but they said they wanted to make product. They wanted to develop a company. So what I did was bring in marketing and sales capabilities and teams to be able to accomplish that. And uh, the idea was you provide that and then we'll just go ahead. Unfortunately, as I said, when it got hijacked by the overnight success myth, when it got hijacked by poor business practices and the guy running it was somebody who'd been in the Navy for a long period of time and had never worried about budgets. The government always provided more. So there was no, no accountability there in terms of what was happening. All of those things happened. So I kept trying to advocate for what I would consider common sense uh, practices in business and do those things. But the, the outside muses that were calling drew us away and the CEO didn't have the capabilities or the attitude or or maybe the, the the moral fiber to be able to sit down and slug it out for the long term the way most businesses do. Mm, interesting. So look we have to work towards wrapping up Hop, but yeah. um 
few last questions. Uh, you know, you said you do a lot of education, teaching, and you know, you're, you're a seasoned entrepreneur. You've, you know, you've been an entrepreneur for at least 40, 40 years and 40, 50 yep. years, right? Or 40 yep. years, yeah. So, you know, what do you, what advice do you have for our audience that are aspiring novice stage entrepreneurs? They either, you know, want to start something or just have started something that might be getting some traction now. You know, what are, what are things that people need to be focusing on and, and really, really being mindful of? Let me give you a few of the lessons I learned in, in sort of in the, the way of something that might be useful or memorable. Mm-hmm. I mean, the first one is, is do something. If you do nothing, it's the only indefensible decision that you have. People are paralyzed lots of time by perfection paralysis. Uh, they're trying to make it perfect or they're afraid of making a decision. No decision is a decision in and of itself, and it's indefensible. Voltaire probably said it best about perfection. He said, perfect is the enemy of good, and so avoid perfection paralysis. A second thing I mentioned it earlier is don't confuse planning and strategy with execution. Execution almost always makes a difference. You, know, you get these great reports written by the McKinsey's or the Baines of the world, and uh, you know they're fabulous, and they're fabulous in their complexity. They cannot be executed by any company on their own. It's a full-time employment act for them because the only people smart enough and brilliant enough uh, to execute are themselves. No company can do it. As I said, it always takes twice as long, costs three times as much as you want. So have a have a fallback plan of where you're going to get that money or time. You know, in my view, it's not price. It's value the customer is looking for. Uh, in, in today's world, there's a knee-jerk reaction to make it cheaper, we'll sell more. I don't think that that's what the customer wants. But if you don't have anything other than price to sell, then that's probably what they want. You have to keep your plans flexible. Uh, because the only constant you're going to see is change. And uh, change creates opportunity if you're open to it. But if you keep fighting it, it's not there. I would say there's a key thing, and that is you need to motivate your people. And there's a simple way to, to do that, and that is hire motivated people. Uh, you can't take somebody who's not motivated and come up with some pay scheme or some pats on the back that really long-term going to make them a really beneficial employee. Uh, it just doesn't happen. And I've, the final thing I'd say is you've got to differentiate in everything you do. There's so much uh, noise in the marketplace right now. There's 500,000 registered brands that exist out there. Uh, people see about 700,000 ads each year on all the different media that they look at. It, with that being said, I mean, how do you rise above it? How do you get noticed? The simple way to do that is differentiate your offering. Don't be like anybody else. And it can be done pretty simply, and it doesn't have to be very costly. But if you don't differentiate yourself, you're just going to get swamped, and all your advertising dollars are just going to be wasted. Look, um, thank you so much, Hap. That was amazing. Um, last question, where's the best place people can find you and uh, purchase your latest book? Well, the book, if you go to Amazon, uh, they have both of the books on there, Amazon is the biggest seller of books. I'd, I'd like it to be in more of the small books than it is, Barnes and Nobles, and but uh, Little Boutique, some of them are carrying it, but Amazon for sure is a good place to do it. And then I'm available on LinkedIn. I'm available through those processes, and I'm pretty uh, good at getting back to people if I'm not totally swamped, and uh, people can communicate with me that way. And of course, there's a lot of me online where, of things where I've 
I've uh, spoken at various events. Once when I was back at North Face talking about the DNA of North Face, uh, that's on there. So if people are interested in learning more, it uh, is a little bit broader than the time that uh, Nathan, you and I have had to have together. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much. And look, I have one dying question I have. How, how did you know when to sell the company? Uh, it's because it wasn't fun anymore. I ended up, because we were growing so rapidly, I was constantly fundraising. And fundraising was a hassle. It wasn't what I, I got into the business for. I, I liked product. I liked motivation people. I liked training people. In fact, 11 of the people that worked for me ended up running companies in the outdoor business. All that stuff was really exciting to me. But going back, bringing in people, uh, the more people you bring in, the for, more divergent opinions you have, the more hassles you have, or the more time you have to spend getting everybody on the same page. And so I found that we were growing so rapidly that every six months I was back in that cycle again. So, you know, I, I kind of said, you know, if I, if I wanted to be an investment banker, I should have gone in investment banking, not go into the North Face and be an investment banker. Mm, I see. And and with that sale, sorry, last question, I promise. With that sale, were you looking for the sale or that person that came, like the company uh, that came to you? It, it, no, we decided to look for the sale. Yep. Okay. Awesome. Well, look, um, thank you so much for your time, Have It's been amazing speaking to you. We've got so much awesome gold from you. We'll just wrap there, but thank you so much. Perfect, Nathan. Well, thank you, and I enjoyed chatting with you. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.